0: Chapter 58 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 58 My aunt is in a strange mood, said Albert, as they ascended together the steps of the entrance. I beg you will pardon her. "'and be assured that this very day "'she will alter her manner and language. "'My brother,' said Consuelo, "'stupefied with the news which had just been announced, "'and not hearing what the young Count said. "'I did not know you had a brother,' said Albert, "'who was more struck by his aunt's ill-temper "'than by this occurrence. "'You will doubtless be glad to see him, dear Consuelo, "'and I am rejoiced. "'Better not, Signor Count,' replied Consuelo, a painful presentiment rapidly occurring to her mind. Some dreadful sorrow was perhaps in store for me, and... She paused, trembling, for she was on the point of asking advice and protection. But she was afraid of drawing closer the bonds already existing between them, and, not daring either to receive or avoid the visitor, who introduced himself to her under color of an untruth, She felt her knees fail her, and turning pale, was obliged to support herself against the balustrade. Do you fear bad news from your family, said Albert, who now began to grow uneasy. I have no family, replied Consuelo, endeavoring to move on. She was about to say that she had no brother, but some vague terror prevented her. In crossing the dining hall she heard the creaking of the traveler's boots pacing backward and forward impatiently. By an involuntary movement, she approached the young count and, as she took his arm, pressed it against her own, as if to seek refuge in his affection from the sufferings which he anticipated. Albert, struck by this movement, felt a deadly apprehension. Do not go in, said he in a low tone of voice, without me. I feel by a sort of presentiment which has never yet failed me that this brother is your enemy and mine. I am chilled. I am afraid as if I were about to be forced to hate someone. Consuela withdrew her arm, which Albert had pressed close to his bosom. She trembled lest he should adopt one of those singular ideas, one of those implacable resolutions of which Zdenko's presumptive death afforded a deplorable instance. Let us part here, she said in German, for their voices could now be heard in the adjoining apartment. I have nothing to fear at present, but, if the future threaten, Albert, be assured I shall have recourse to you. Albert yielded with extreme reluctance, fearing to be found wanting in delicacy. He dared not disobey, but he could not resolve to leave the hall. Consuelo, who understood his thoughts, closed the double doors of the saloon when she entered in order that he might neither hear nor see what was about to occur. Anzaletto, for his effrontery left no doubt on her mind that it was indeed he, was prepared to salute her bodily in the presence of witnesses with a fraternal embrace. But when he saw her enter alone, pale but cold and severe, he lost all his courage and stammering, threw himself at her feet. It was not necessary, indeed, for him to feign joy or tenderness. He experienced both these feelings in their full reality, at discovering her whom, notwithstanding his baseness, he had never ceased to love. He burst into tears, and as she would not let him take her hands, he covered the border of her garment with kisses and tears. Consuelo had not expected to find him thus. For months she had thought of him as he had appeared on the night of their separation, the most bitter, hateful, and detestable of men. That very morning she had seen him pass with an insolent and careless air. Now he was on his knees, repentant, prostrate, bathed in tears, as in the stormiest days of their once passionate reconciliations, and handsomer than ever. For his traveling costume, though common enough, became him to admiration, and his sunburnt complexion imparted a more manly expression to his classic features. Trembling like the dove in the grasp of the hawk, she was forced to seat herself and hide her face in her hands, to avoid the fascination of his gaze. This gesture, which Anzaletto took for shame, encouraged him, and the return of his evil thoughts soon destroyed the effect of his first warm and unaffected transports. Anzaletto, in flying from Venice, and the vexations inseparable from his faults, had no other aim but that of seeking his fortune. But he had always cherished the desire and expectation of once more finding out his dear Consuelo, Such talents as hers could not, in his opinion, remain long hidden, and by dint of chatting with innkeepers, guides, and travelers, he left no means untried of procuring information. At Vienna, he had met persons of distinction from his native city, to whom he had confessed his folly and his flight. They advised him to wait in some place at a distance from Venice, until Count Sostiniani had forgotten or forgiven his escapade, and, while promising to intercede for him, they gave him letters of introduction to Prague, Dresden, and Berlin. On passing by the castle of the giants, Anzaletto had never thought of questioning his guide, but after about a half hour's rapid ride, having paused to breathe the horses, he had entered into conversation with him relative to the people and the surrounding country. Naturally enough, the guide spoke of the lords of Rudelstadt, their strange mode of life, and particularly of the eccentricities of Count Albert, which were no longer a secret to anybody, especially since Dr. Wetzelius had declared open enmity toward him. The guide added to this the local gossip that the count had refused to marry his cousin the beautiful Baroness Amelia de Rudelstadt, in order to take up with an adventuress, not so remarkable for her beauty as for her admirable singing, which enchanted everyone. This description was so applicable to Consuelo that our traveler immediately asked the name of the adventuress, and learning that she was called the Porporina, instantly guessed the truth. He retraced his steps, and after having rapidly invented the pretext by which to introduce himself into so well-guarded a castle, he continued to question his guide still further. The man's gossip induced him to believe that Consuela was the young Count's betrothed and was about to become his wife. But the story was that she had enchanted the whole family, and instead of turning her out of doors as she deserved, they paid her more respect and attention than they had ever done to the baroness Amelia. These details stimulated Anzaletto quite as much as, and perhaps even more, than his real attachment for Consuelo. He had indeed sighed for the return of that peaceful existence, which he had led with her. He truly really felt that in losing her advice and direction, he had destroyed, or at least put in jeopardy, the success of his musical career, and, in short. He was strongly attracted to her by a love at once selfish, deep-seated, and unconquerable. But to all this was added the vainglorious wish of disputing the affections of Consuelo with a rich and noble lover, of snatching her from her brilliant marriage, and causing it to be said in the neighborhood and in the world, that this highly cherished girl had preferred to follow his fortunes rather than become countess and chatelaine. He amused himself, therefore, by making his guide repeat that the porporina was Lady Paramount at Riesenberg, and inwardly gloried in the childish idea that this same guide should relate to future travellers, that one day a gay young fellow rode up to the inhospitable castle of the giants, came, saw, and conquered, and a day or two afterward took his leave, carrying with him this pearl of singer's. "'before the very eyes of the puissant lord of Rudelstadt.' "'At this idea, he struck the rails into his horse's sides "'and laughed so loud and long that the guide concluded "'that of the two, certainly Count Albert was not the matter.' "'The canonist received Anzaletta with distrust, "'but did not like to dismiss him, "'as she hoped that he would perhaps take with him his pretended sister.' He was out of temper when he learned that Consuelo was walking, and he questioned the domestics on the subject while they served breakfast. Only one of them understood a little Italian, and he replied, without any malicious intention, that he had seen the Signor on the mountain with the young count. Anzaletto said to himself that if Consuelo were the betrothed of the count, she would have the proud attitude of a person in her position. But if it were otherwise she would be less certain of her standing and would tremble before an old friend who might thwart her projects. Anzaletta was too acute not to perceive the ill-temper and uneasiness with which the canonist viewed this long walk of Porporina with her nephew. As he did not see Count Christian, he thought that the guide must have misinformed him, that the family were displeased with the Count's affection for the young adventuress and that the latter would be abashed before her first lover. Interpreting in this manner the irresistible emotion she had felt on first seeing him, he thought, when he saw her sink in her chair, fainting and agitated, that he might go any lengths. He therefore gave full scope to his eloquence, reproached himself for the past, humbled himself hypocritically, wept, related his torments and despair, painting them somewhat more poetically than the truth warranted, and finally implored her pardon with all the persuasive eloquence of a Venetian and an accomplished actor. Agitated by his voice, and fearing her own weakness more than his remaining influence, Consuelo, who also had had time for reflection during the last four months, was sufficiently self-possessed to detect in these professions— and in this passionate eloquence, which she had already heard a thousand times at Venice, in the latter days of their unhappy attachment. It mortified her to find that he used the same assurances, the same oaths, as if nothing had happened since those quarrels in which he was far from suspecting the infamous part Anzaletto had played. Indignant at such audacity and such flowery language, When tears and shame alone should have manifested themselves, she cut him short by rising and coldly replying, It is enough, Anzaletto. I have already pardoned you, and I wish to hear no more. Anger has given place to pity, and your misconduct and my sufferings are equally forgotten. There is nothing more to say. I thank you for the kindness which induced you to interrupt your journey with a view to a reconciliation but your pardon, as you see, was already granted, so now adieu. "'I leave you? I quit you?' exclaimed Ansoletto, not really terrified. "'No, I would rather you kill me at once. "'No, never should I be able to live without you. "'I could not do it, Consuelo. "'I have tried, and I know it is in vain. "'Where you are not, there is nothing for me. "'My hateful ambition—' My miserable vanity, to which I wished, but in vain, to sacrifice my love, have been my torment, and have never yielded me a moment's pleasure. Your image follows me everywhere. The memory of our happiness, so pure, so chaste, so delightful, and where could you yourself find anything approaching to it, is ever before my eyes. I am disgusted with all around me. Oh, Consuelo, do you remember the lovely nights at Venice? Our boat, the stars, our endless songs, and your gentle lessons. Did I not love you then? If I have acted ill toward others, oh, do not forget that at least I have been faultless toward you. You once professed to love me, but how have you forgotten your pledge? I, thankless monster, wretch that I am, had never once forgotten it and I do not wish to forget it, although you do so without effort or regret. It is possible, replied Consuelo, struck by the truth which these words seemed to display, that you do indeed regret this lost happiness, lost, destroyed by your own misconduct. It is a punishment which you must endure, and which I ought not to prevent. Happiness corrupted you, Anzaletto, and you require suffering to purify you. Go and remember me, if this affliction prove salutary. If not, forget me, as I forget you, I, who have nothing either to expiate or atone. Ah, you have a heart of iron, exclaimed Anzaletto, surprised and wounded by her tranquility. But do not expect thus to drive me away. It is possible that I annoy you, and that I am here somewhat in the way. You would sacrifice, I know. THE MEMORY OF THE PAST TO RANK AND FORTUNE, BUT IT SHALL NOT BE SO. I WILL STAY WITH YOU, AND IF I LOSE YOU, IT SHALL NOT BE WITHOUT A STRUGGLE. I WILL RECALL THE PAST, AND THAT TOO BEFORE ALL YOUR NEW FRIENDS, IF YOU FORCE ME TO IT. I WILL REPEAT THE oaths WHICH YOU MADE AT THE BEDSIDE OF YOUR DYING MOTHER, AND WHICH YOU REPEATED A HUNDRED TIMES ON HER TOMB, AND IN THE CHURCHES WHERE WE knelt SIDE BY SIDE. LISTEN TO THE MUSIC. "'and conversing in whispers. "'I will tell your new lover, that of which he is not aware, "'for they know nothing of you, not even that you were an actress. "'Yes, I will tell them, and we shall see if the noble Count Albert "'will dispute you with an actor, your friend, your equal, your betrothed, your lover. "'Ah, do not drive me to despair, Consuelo, or... "'What, threats?' said the angry maiden." At last I have found you out, Anzaletto. I rejoice at it, and I thank you for having raised the mask. Yes, thanks to heaven. I shall regret and pity you no more. I see the venom which rankles within your heart. I recognize your baseness and your hateful love. Go wreak your vengeance. You will only do me a service. But unless you are equally expert in calumny as an in insult, you cannot say anything to make me blush. Thus saying, she retreated to the door, opened it, and was just leaving the room when she met Count Christian. Anzoletto, who had rushed forward to detain her by force of cunning, on seeing the venerable old man, who advanced with an affable and majestic air after having kissed Consuelo's hand, fell back intimidated and bereft of his audacity. End of chapter 58